To make a donation, visit biblicallycorrectpodcast.org slash donate. And if you enjoyed this episode, please like, share, and subscribe. Thank you for your support. These are the six essentials for biblical faith. Welcome to the Biblically Correct Podcast. Shalom, y'all. This is the Biblically Correct Podcast, teaching biblical correctness in a biblically incorrect world. My name is Kevin Jeffrey. I'm a Jewish follower of the Messiah Yeshua, Jesus, and I love teaching the scriptures. What will it take for me to consider someone a brother or sister in Messiah? This is a question I've been asking myself a lot lately, as we as Messiah followers are increasingly facing minority religious status and are plagued by division, crazy beliefs, and the overall watering down of the Bible. We simply can't afford to take the fundamentals of our faith for granted. So I've been asking myself, what are the minimum beliefs that should allow basic fellowship with other believers and identify each of us as having an essential biblical faith? And I think I've managed to boil it down to six areas of belief where I believe there could be no compromise and no debate. That if we have agreement and total unity on these six areas, then we can confidently consider each other brothers and sisters and begin to walk together in Messiah. Now, I'm not naive. I realize that in order to have real, meaningful relationship and trust, there are going to be many other areas besides these six that we'll need to work through and find common ground. So just keep in mind that these are what I believe are the minimum beliefs. We need to share if we're going to walk together, and if we don't even meet this minimum, then we're not actually following the same faith. And if you feel that I missed something essential in this list, leave a comment or send me an email with your ideas and the scriptures to back it up. I'll give you my email at the end of the episode. Now, the first thing we need to agree on ought to be obvious, and that's which God we're worshiping. So, the first essential belief for biblical faith is that the God of Israel, the one true God, is the creator of everything. We learn this from the very first verse of the Bible, Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And Moses reiterates this in Exodus chapter 20, verse 11. For in six days, Adonai, the Lord, had made the heavens and the earth, the sea, and all that is in them. And who is this Adonai? Well, Moses tells us in Exodus chapter 20, verse 2, I am Adonai, your God, who has brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of a house of slaves. And in Deuteronomy 6, 4, Moses proclaims, Shema Yisrael, Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Echad. Hear, O Israel, Adonai is our God, Adonai is one. So setting aside the issue of the name here, whether we address him in English or Hebrew or whatever, The point of agreement needs to be that the God we serve and call upon is the creator of the universe. He made us and everything out of nothing. But also that this isn't just some generic God or higher being or the God of some other religion, but specifically the God of Israel, the God of the Jewish people, the God of the Bible. And we also need to agree that there isn't a host of gods or heavenly beings that are available for us to worship or pray to as we please, but that the creator, the God of Israel, Adonai, is one. 
There's only one creator, one true God, and he alone is our God. As David declares in 2 Samuel 7.22, You are great Adonai Elohim, Lord God, for there is none like you, and there is no God besides you. So that's the first essential belief that we need to share as brothers and sisters in Messiah, that the God of Israel alone, the one true God, is our creator. The next thing we need to agree on has to do with what separates us from God and from one another. So the second essential belief for biblical faith is that it's wrong to sin and God's the one who defines what sin is. Sin is as old as Adam and Eve in their disobedience, which led to their expulsion from the garden and the presence of God. And the scriptures make it abundantly clear that God won't abide sin. Isaiah chapter 59 verse 2 says, But your causes of guilt have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you, from hearing you. In Psalm 5 verse 4, David declares, For you are not a God desiring wickedness. Evil cannot dwell with you. And in Proverbs chapter 6 verses 16 through 19, Solomon tells us how God literally hates sin. He says, these six things Adonai hates. Yes, seven are abominations to his soul. Haughty eyes, lying tongues, and hands shedding innocent blood. A heart devising thoughts of wickedness, feet hastening to run to evil, a false witness who breathes out lies, and one sowing discord between brothers. This, of course, is hardly an exhaustive list as the scriptures are filled with instructions, principles, and specific prohibitions, the violation of which all constitute sin. As Paul says, for example, in Romans 7, 7, I did not know the sin except through Torah. Indeed, I also would not have known what the covetousness was if the Torah had not said, you must not covet. This is why we need to be so personally familiar with God's word not just so that we can know what God wants us to do, but also what he doesn't, so that we can know what God considers sin and how to avoid it. And as for how sin affects our relationships with one another, just as God doesn't tolerate sin, we're also supposed to separate from other believers who are in unrepentant, repeated sin, as Paul commands in 1 Corinthians 5.11 and 13. But now I write to you not to keep company with him, if it is anyone being named a brother, who may be sexually immoral, or covetous, or an idolater, or a slanderer, or a drunkard, or a plunderer, with such a one not even to eat together. Put away the evil from among yourselves. That last sentence being a direct quote from the Torah. So when we choose to sin, It separates us from the presence and goodness of God, while also violating a standard of acceptable behavior within the body of Messiah. God hasn't given us the authority to tolerate or redefine sin, and we have to abide by his judgment. So that's the second essential belief that we need to share as brothers and sisters in Messiah, that sin is wrong and God alone determines what is sinful. So once we accept the concept and existence of sin, the next thing we need to agree on 
that's essential for biblical faith is that because of sin, man is in need of salvation. We need to be saved from the consequences of our sin. That we're naturally inclined towards sin is a fundamental fact of humanity. As God says in Genesis 8.21, the imagination of the heart of man is evil from his youth. And in 1 Kings 8.46, it says, for there is not a man who does not sin. In Psalm 53.3, David declares, there is none doing good, not even one. In Romans 3.23, Paul teaches us, for all sinned and are come short of the glory of God. And in 1 John 1.8, it says, if we say we have no sin, we lead ourselves astray and the truth is not in us. So regardless of how good or innocent any of us perceive ourselves to be, there's no escaping our own hearts, thoughts, and actions. Each one of us is bound to sin. It's just part of our human nature. And no amount of good things we might do in life are enough to offset the sin in our hearts and evil actions. None of us are capable of fully being and doing good. As Yeshua says in Matthew 19, 17, there is only one who is good, and that's God. But the matter of sin is more than just knowing the difference between right and wrong and altering our thoughts and behavior. Because the biggest problem with sin, which is impossible to avoid, is that any amount of sin incurs an eternal cost. When we sin, it comes at an extremely high price, the cost of your life. As Paul says in Romans 6.23, for the wages of the sin is death. We deserve death for our sin. And in Matthew 25.46, Yeshua says that sinners will go away to punishment, age enduring, to eternal punishment, to punishment that never ends. And if that weren't clear enough, in Luke 12.5, the master also says, but I will show you whom you should fear. Fear him who after the killing of the body is having authority to throw you into the Gehinnom or into hell. So everlasting separation from God is much worse than we could have imagined. When we sin, we accrue a debt that's payable only with our lives. This is the unavoidable destiny for every one of us, no matter how good of a life we live, because we all sin and the price of that sin needs to be paid. And it's because of this need to be rescued from certain death and eternal damnation that the third essential belief that we need to share as brothers and sisters in Messiah is that because we all sin and that sin has an unaffordable price, we're all in need of salvation. And thankfully, in spite of the problem that we ourselves caused by our own sin, God has made a way out for us, but only one way. So the fourth essential belief for a biblical faith is that the only way of salvation is by grace through faith in the Messiah, Yeshua. The Master Yeshua himself teaches us in John chapter 14, verse 6, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father unless through me. Peter says in Acts chapter 4, verse 12, there is not salvation in any other besides Yeshua. Indeed, there is no other name under the heaven that has been given among men in which we must be saved. And the means for this salvation is, of course, spiritual, as the Master declares in John 3, 6 and 3, that which has been born of the Spirit 
is spirit. And I say to you, if anyone is not born again from above, he is not able to see the reign of God. So only through Yeshua being born again by the Spirit of God can we come to God and receive salvation. There aren't many paths to God or even just a few, only one, because this way and door to salvation is open through Yeshua's once and for all sacrificial death made on our behalf. By paying the price for our sin with his innocent, sinless blood, Yeshua redeems us from death and eternal punishment. As it says in Hebrews 9.26, But now, once, at the full end of the ages, he has been revealed for the nullification of sin through his sacrifice. And in 1 John 2.2, it says, And Yeshua himself is an appeasement or atonement for our sins. But then, after Yeshua died, God did the most incredible thing. He defeated death forever by raising Yeshua from the dead. And if we believe in Yeshua's resurrection and make him the master of our life, then we too will be raised to life with him and be saved from our sins forever. This is why Paul requires of us in Romans 10, 9, and 10, that if you confess with your mouth, Yeshua is master, and believe in your heart that God raised him out of the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes, leading to righteousness, and with the mouth, confession is made, leading to salvation. So through our audible profession of allegiance to Yeshua and our belief that he was supernaturally raised from the dead, we accept the one-of-a-kind sacrifice made on our behalf and are led into righteousness and salvation. And the only thing that could make this unprecedented salvation even more exceptional is that he offers us this gift not because of anything we've ever done or will do. In fact, there's absolutely nothing we can or need to do to earn or merit our salvation. It's a free gift to us from God. Paul explicitly teaches us this in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. For by unmerited favor or grace, you are having been saved through faith, and this not of something you did. It is the gift of God, not of your actions, so that no one may boast. So while we should expect true faith to come alive and bear fruit through our good actions, avoidance of sin, and obedience to his word, as far as salvation is concerned, no action on our part contributes to the effectiveness of his sacrifice, or makes us more worthy, or warrants our selection to be children of God. Only through our belief and confession in Yeshua as the only way to eternal life, and by the unmerited favor he shows us, despite what we've ever done, can we be saved. The reason the good news of Yeshua is so great is because God's done all the work himself to save us from our sins. And yet, if we want to accept that gift, there's only one narrow path we can take to get there, the one that only goes through Yeshua. And that's why the fourth essential belief that we need to share as brothers and sisters in Messiah is that the only way to salvation is through faith in Yeshua, and there's nothing we can ever do or say to earn that unmerited 
redemption. What we can't gloss over, however, is that there's a very specific reason why Yeshua is the one through whom salvation comes. So we need to agree not just that he's the only way, but agree on who Yeshua truly is and what qualifies him to be our Savior. So that means that the fifth essential belief for biblical faith is that Yeshua is the one and only Son of God who's both fully human and fully God. One of the most famous verses of the Bible makes Yeshua's unique sonship clear and undeniable. Yeshua teaches us in John 3.16, For God so loved the world that the Son, the one and only, He gave, so that everyone who is believing in Him may not be destroyed, but may have life, age, enduring. So part of what qualifies Yeshua as our Savior is the unique relationship that He has to the Father as the Son. Yeshua was given and sent to the world by God as an expression of God's love for us. And Yeshua himself not only acknowledges that relationship, but relies upon it for the authority that it gives him for the forgiveness of sins. But Yeshua's unique qualifications don't end there, because the Son of God, who was sent as an appeasement for our sins, has a -a one-of-a-kind nature that is simultaneously both fully God and fully man. As a human being, we know that Yeshua was literally born. In fact, the very first verse of Matthew begins with his birth record, a scroll of the birth of Yeshua the Messiah, son of David, son of Abraham. Hebrews chapter 2 details his humanity, saying in verse 14 that as the children have shared in blood and flesh, Yeshua himself likewise shared of the same. And in verse 17, it says that it was necessary for him to be made like the brothers in all things to make appeasement for the sins of the people. And in 1 John chapter 4, verse 2, the disciple teaches us the importance of affirming and not denying Yeshua's humanity, saying that every spirit that professes Yeshua the Messiah, having come in the flesh, is of God. So Yeshua was a man who shares our same flesh and blood. And except that he was without sin, he is just like us in all things. This is what qualified him to be the acceptable substitutionary sacrifice for our sins. But at the same time, with no commingling with his humanity whatsoever, Yeshua is also something that we are clearly not. As fully as Yeshua is human, He is also fully God. The opening verses of the book of John are one of the clearest statements in all of Scripture. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. This one was in the beginning with God. And how this Word became Yeshua is beautifully recounted in verse 14, saying that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Matthew also depicts this same event, which he frames as prophetic fulfillment in chapter 1, verse 23, saying that the virgin will conceive and she will bring forth a son and they will call his name Emmanuel, which means being interpreted with us, he is God. In Colossians 1.15, Yeshua is described as the image of the invisible God. In Hebrews 1.3, he is the exact imprint of God's substantive existence. And in John chapter 10, verse 30, the master says, I and the Father 
are one. And in the most straightforward of terms, Paul says unequivocally in Colossians chapter 2, verse 9, that in Yeshua, all the fullness of the deity dwells bodily. And in Philippians chapter 2, verse 10, he declares that Yeshua the Messiah is Adonai. The scriptures make no effort to explain how Yeshua can possess these two distinct yet inseparable natures. They don't depict him as half God and half man, or a conjoined superhuman God-man, but one person, both and simultaneously fully human and fully God. And because he is both of these, Yeshua was uniquely qualified to save us from our sins. Only the humanity in Yeshua could be our suitable sacrifice. Only the deity in him could afford the ransom for our souls. So if we deny either his full humanity or his full deity, we destroy the hope we have in him and undermine the entire message of the good news. And that's why the fifth essential belief that we need to share as brothers and sisters in Messiah is that Yeshua is uniquely God's son and he is both fully man and fully God. So now we've covered five out of the six minimum beliefs that I believe are absolutely necessary for basic fellowship with other believers and to identify us as having an essential biblical faith. And if you're a believer in Yeshua, it's possible none of these seem particularly controversial to you. In fact, they're about as fundamental to our faith as you can get. So if every believer in Yeshua ought to be able to agree on all these things, then why is it so difficult for us to remain in fellowship with one another and to avoid disagreement, division, and denominations? It's because we don't agree, or we say we agree but don't actually mean it, on what I believe is the sixth essential belief for biblical faith, which is that the Bible alone is the written word of God, and therefore the only authority to tell us what to believe and how to live our lives. That the Bible is the Word of God is indicated in places such as 2 Timothy 3.16, where Paul says that every scripture is God-breathed. And also in John chapter 10, verse 35, where Yeshua says that the scripture is not able to be broken. In Exodus 24.4, it says that Moses wrote down all the words of Adonai. And in Deuteronomy 4, verse 2, he said, Do not add to the word which I am commanding you, nor diminish from it, to keep the commands of Adonai, your God. Paul also exhorts us in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 6, to learn not to go beyond what has been written. So if you agree with any of the previous five essentials, it's only because you've accepted and believed what the Bible says. But the problem is that if you don't recognize the full authority of Scripture and accept the final word of its teachings and place your absolute trust only in the guidance of the Bible, by the Holy Spirit, then all those other foundational beliefs are without any solid ground to stand on. That's why it's so dangerous and detrimental to our faith to not limit our beliefs and boundaries to only what's inclusive of everything from Genesis to Revelation. Our lack of conviction about the nature and authority of the Bible is why we allow other voices and religious writings to have a similar or even higher authority in our lives, such as the teachings of Calvin or Luther or the Talmud or the Catechism of Catholicism 
or the Book of Mormon, and so on. When we allow other voices and writings to share Scripture's sphere of influence and authority, then we're knocking ourselves out of orbit of true biblical faith and leaving ourselves without a unifying standard upon which we can all agree and share in fellowship and brotherhood with one another. Our entire faith, what we believe, and our standards for behavior all hang on this one essential belief, that only the Bible is the written word of God, and it alone has the authority to tell us what to believe and how to live. So those are the six areas of belief that I've identified that we need for an essential biblical faith. And as far as I'm concerned, there can be zero compromise on any of what I just covered, and we need to have total and complete unity and agreement on all of it. Again, those six essential beliefs are One, that the God of Israel, the one true God, is the creator of everything. Two, that it's wrong to sin, and God's the only one who can define what sin is. Three, that because of sin, man is in need of salvation. Four, that the only way of salvation is by grace through faith in the Messiah, Yeshua. Five, that Yeshua is the one and only Son of God who's both fully human and fully God. And six, that the Bible alone is the written word of God and therefore the only authority to tell us what to believe and how to live our lives. Now, as I said at the beginning, these six areas are just the minimum of what I believe we need in order to consider someone a brother or sister in Messiah. These fundamental beliefs will get us in the same room with each other, but then over time, we'll still need to come to agreement on many other monumentally important issues in order to walk together and to build relationship and community. In other words, these will establish that we're brothers and sisters in Messiah, but we'll still need to determine, are we behaving as his disciples? By what fruit are we known? We'll have established that we believe in the teachings and authority of Scripture, but are we obeying those Scriptures and reflecting Scriptural values and priorities in our daily lives? Then, of course, there are the more contentious matters which have historically divided believers into denominations. All of these will need to be dealt with eventually. But if we can come together on these six areas, then we at least have a solid foundation upon which to work out doctrinal differences when they arise and to build toward harmony and unity in our practice, faith, and way of life. Paul exhorts us in 1 Corinthians 1, verse 10. And I call upon you, brothers, through the name of our Master Yeshua the Messiah, that you all say the same thing, and there may not be divisions among you, and you may be perfectly united in the same mind and in the same judgment. We need to come together on the essentials of our faith, not according to the teachings of any man, but only based on what the Scriptures say. Let's work to become perfectly united under the sole authority of the Word of God so that we can confidently serve Him side by side as brothers and sisters in our Savior, Messiah. Thanks for joining me for this episode of the Biblically Correct Podcast. If you like this episode and want to see us make more, then we need your help. Visit our website at biblicallycorrectpodcast.org to support the work of Perfect Word Ministries and MJMI with your much-needed donations. And of course, don't forget to like, share, 
comment, subscribe, and ring the bell to receive notifications whenever a new episode is posted. If you have any questions about this teaching, or if there are any other topics you'd like to see me cover, leave me a comment or shoot me an email at kevin at perfectword.org. That's kevin at perfectword.org. Until next time, remember that every scripture is God-breathed and profitable for teaching, for refuting, for setting a right, and for instruction that is in righteousness, so that the man of God may be fully equipped, having been completed for every good act. Shalom.